and welcome back to Skeptics and Seekers. Uh, this is uh, another supplemental uh, in my Shroud series, and it's a, a special treat. I'm going to be doing an interview with Dr. Kelly Kurse, who's a, an expert, an immunologist and, and blood expert, and he's going to be discussing Shroud bloodstains with you guys. Um, so, so yeah, that'll be coming up. Uh, also, I do have the Robert Stanley. I have the recording. I was on uh, the show, the Right to Reason podcast, on the talking about the Abraham test. Uh, so I have the recording. There's a little bit of effort I'm going to have to put into editing it. Um, but Robert Stanley gave me permission to put it up on on my website. His web. It'll take him about three weeks to get it up on his site. Um, so yeah, you can listen to my version. My my version will be a bit fuller. There's a little bit behind a little bit more information behind the scenes stuff that I'll be including just because I think it's good for for the audience to see how how you know how the the podcasts are made and that sort of thing how the sausage is made as David says so uh, yeah that mine won't be as heavily edited as as Robert's will but um, yeah uh, it was a great both were great shows anyways uh, so I'll put that up for you guys uh, probably by Monday but otherwise, yeah, enjoy the show on the Shroud of Turin here with Dr. Kelly Kurse. Hello, and welcome back to a special edition of Skeptics and Seekers. Uh, this is going to be continuing my Shroud series. Uh, and today we have a special treat for you because we have a, a special guest who he actually reached out uh, to us through the feedback on the website. Um, he's a, a Shroud expert, Dr. Kelly Kurse. Uh, so first of all, welcome to the show there, Kelly. Thank you. Excellent. Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you. He, he's uh, He's got a sort of a unique take on the Shroud's bloodstains that he wants to share with us. So that's sort of his area of, of specialization or, or focus within Shroud research there. Um, and he's interesting because he's not necessarily an authenticist or a skeptic. He, he's actually agnostic on the the question of, of Shroud authenticity. Um, so, so yeah, I think before I get into anything, uh, the first thing to do is turn it over to, to you as the guest there, Kelly. Why, why don't you introduce us as to who you are, uh, give us a little bit maybe of your faith journey as, as a Christian, uh, and then lead into your involvement with the Shroud. Sure. So um, it's Kelly Kears, so it rhymes with Pierce, Kears. Okay. Um, yeah, sure. So uh, I'll just talk a little bit about the science part of it. Uh, I was interested in science from a very young age when the first human heart transplant was done in 1967 by Dr. Christian Bernard. Uh, I was really fascinated with that, why you couldn't just take hearts from someone and put it into another person, uh, why it was rejected. So I began to learn about that and learn that there was an immune system that would actively protect your body against things that were foreign. And I uh, began to read about other transplants, blood transfusions were actually the first transplants that were uh, ever done. So that kind of hooked me on science from a very uh, young age. I thought about becoming a uh, MD, that something to do with transplants, but the experimental side just appealed to me a little bit more. So I would uh, get a BS in biology, a master's in biology, and then a PhD in immunology. And after that, I went and did a postdoc at Johns Hopkins Medical School in the field of biochemistry because I wanted to pick up on those techniques. And then I did a second postdoc at the National Cancer Institute at NIH, and that was in immunology. So my idea was to kind of bring these different uh, techniques uh, together in those fields. And uh, at NIH, I was uh, 
eventually hired as a principal investigator to run my own lab in the experimental immunology branch at the National Cancer Institute. When I was thinking about uh, taking that job, which was pure research, I um, thought about going somewhere where I could also do some teaching in addition to research. I'd done teaching during graduate school and I really enjoyed it. Um, but they said, why don't you just come on and try it? You can always go and do research and teaching later. So that's basically what I ended up doing a few years later. I transferred to uh, East Carolina University School of Medicine in North Carolina. And there I did about 60% research and about 40% teaching. I taught graduate students and medical students. And while I was there, they have a program called Summer Ventures where you bring high school kids into your lab for the summer. So I was involved in the program for a couple of years, and I always had this idea, even back when I was a postdoc, that one day when I was like 95 years old, at the end of the rainbow, I was going to um, go back and teach high school science. So after thinking about it for a number of years, that's what I decided to do. So in the year 2000, I moved back to Knoxville, Tennessee. That's my original hometown. And uh, for the past, this will be my 20th year, I've taught it science at Knoxville Catholic High School. Um, I really love the research, but I also really love the teaching. So that's kind of the, the science part of it. Excuse me, as far as that faith journey, I was raised in a Christian home. I was raised Protestant, Baptist. We went to church uh, twice on Sunday, uh, once on Wednesday. We used to call it making a profession of faith or walking down the aisle to accept Christ as your Savior. I did that when I was six years old. I'm not sure if I completely understood it when I was six years old. Uh, I did it again when I was 14 years old. And, yeah, I was uh, entirely sure. I think I had a more deep uh, understanding of it. Mm. When uh, I went to college, graduate school, I probably wasn't as close uh, to the church as I should have been. Uh, in graduate school, I met my wife, who's a Catholic. She's a cradle Catholic. Mm. Uh, we were married, and the first few years after we were married, we tried to find some denominations that were kind of in between the two, but none of them really fit for either of us. So. Uh, I would eventually convert to Catholicism as an adult. I converted back in uh, 1988. I had a lot of questions about it initially, but uh, the more I studied, the more uh, I really began to understand things and accept things. And for me, it's, it's really been the richest form of faith that I've ever experienced. So that's kind of the faith journey side of it. Uh, as far as the uh, as far as the Stroud goes, the first time I ever remember hearing about the Stroud. Because back in college, I was working in a grocery store as a butcher. I was taking a break, and there was a magazine rack I was looking through. I think it was National Geographic. I looked through it. There were some photos of the shroud, and the negative image of it particularly kind of uh, jumped out to me. So uh, I was interested in it, but let's just say maybe a casual interest. I watched a couple TV shows, read a couple books through the years, that kind of thing. Um, in the late 90s, I had the opportunity to go to Italy on a, a science conference, and it wasn't in Turin, it was in Tuscany, but we traveled around to different regions, and even though the Shroud wasn't on public exhibition, I considered going to Turin just to see the church where it was in and things like that, and the schedule was kind of tight, so I ended up not being able to do that then. In uh, 2010, the Shroud went on public exhibition. And it was right around the times of our spring break in school, so I considered going to that. And the dates 
didn't exactly overlap, so it didn't uh, work out. But in preparation for that, I began to read a lot about the Shroud, try to go back to some of the original articles. And I also listened to a lot of Shroud podcasts. And because of my background, uh, the blood studies just kind of naturally uh, jumped out to me. So I began to listen to some of the things that were being said, and there was uh, there was some truth in part of it. There was also some things that I think were kind of a misunderstanding. I wasn't really sure where they come from. So I started to kind of dig deeper and deeper into the Shroud then. And the Shroud, usually you'll go in with five questions on something. You'll come out of it with 50, and your interest just kind of keeps uh, getting deeper with it. At least mine did. Mine did. And um, the year 2015, the Shroud was on public exhibition again. So I was able to go to Turin this time. I actually went with the tour group that was led by uh, Dr. Jackson, who spearheaded the uh, STIRP team, which I'm sure we'll talk about, by Dr. Jackson and his uh, wife, Rebecca. Mm-hmm. So that was a, a really cool experience. Turin wasn't the only place in Italy that we went. We toured around, but uh, we spent a couple of days there, and Dr. Jackson talked on the uh, Shroud quite a bit. And after you go through the main line, you can go to the back of the church there in Turin, and you can sit as long as you like and see the Shroud from some distance. So during lunch one day, uh, just the two of us, Dr. Jackson and I, walked over uh, to have another look. And he stopped and showed me where the equipment first uh, rolled in to do the test and around the back of the building when the shroud came down this hallway, this is the room, et cetera, et cetera. So that was kind of a really cool experience to have that uh, sort of one-on-one opportunity with him. He's a, a very interesting man to talk to. Um, I also had the opportunity to look at some of the slides from the Max Fry collection, and these were uh, in possession of the late uh, Dr. Wanger, who since passed away. But when Dr. Wanger was alive, uh, I was able to go to uh, his house and to look at uh, these slides. These are uh, sticky tape lifts that were taken from the surface of the shroud. The uh, main ones I was interested in, in the blood stains. So he had an absolutely killer microscope. He was uh, very gracious, very generous letting me uh, have a look at those excellent excellent yeah um well I, i'm very excited to to have you on the show i think you're gonna have Thank a you. have a lot to to contribute for us and i know uh, some of my listeners I, I sort of announced this uh to build anticipation for the show so i know that they're really looking forward to hearing what you have to say as well okay. um perfect um so one thing, just before we start getting into the main topic about the blood stain, I, I'm just sort of curious um, about your take as a, as a Christian scientist. Um, you know, what what do you make of the evidence for and against um, the shroud having belonged to the historical Jesus versus being a, a medieval fake? Um, yeah, what what do you make of that that sort of evidence? Sure. So. As far as the Stroud goes, I really don't consider myself either an authenticist or a skeptic. Um, Is the Stroud real for me? Uh, I simply don't know. I I view myself as a scientist who happens to be a Christian and a Christian who happens to be a scientist. I don't don't think that science will ever be able to prove that the Stroud is authentic. However, I think one or two experiments that could potentially show that the Stroud is not genuine. I mean, for the main issues, it's difficult to do the experiment, to put a person into a lab and resurrect them. It's not a thing that's easily done. And in issues like this, there's always going to be a point where the science is going to end and the faith has to extend it from there. I mean, I'm a, as I mentioned, I'm a Catholic Christian. I certainly believe in the resurrection. 
the Gospels tell us that Christ's body was wrapped in a shroud. I believe there was a burial shroud at some point. Whether this was it, personally, I'm not sure. I mean, it certainly could be. And if it is, I mean, that's an absolutely incredible thing. Even if there's a 10% chance that it could be real, that's a that's an incredible thing. So the shroud is something that's a real unique mix of science and faith. These are separate, but they're ultimately complementary. It's very, very intriguing. And scientifically, though, I think you have to be objective. So again, authentic or not authentic, for me personally, is still an open issue. Gotcha. So, and so I guess uh, from even through your lens, then of, of focusing on the the bloodstained evidence, from you would say from a historical lens of asking this question that the science just won't get us that that the blood evidence won't be able to prove that. I don't. I don't think you could ever prove. Uh, that it's but I think you could chip away and uh, look at things and then you can make reasonable conclusions from it yes I think more study could lead to more questions being answered I don't think science could ever allow you to absolutely prove that this is 100% authentic prove it prove is a really really strong word in, in that scientific context gotcha perfect um, yeah well I think the thing to do is okay well well let's look at what we do know about the the bloodstained evidences here. So, um, obviously, as, as you'll be aware, one of the the central areas of controversy between the pro shroud and, and shroud skeptic sides um, is on the the nature of these bloodstains that we have on this cloth. Is it real blood or real human blood, or is it paint or some you know some kind of artistic substance? Um, so, so yeah. In the first place, as, as this is your area of expertise, um, have we scientifically verified that the Shroud's bloodstains are in fact real blood or, or something else? And yeah, maybe just sort of walk us through some of the history of the scientific and forensic investigations that have been done on the bloodstains there as well. Sure, sure. So, so to absolutely prove that the Shroud wrapped Jesus from blood evidence, for this, you'd have to turn to something that's that's very, very specific, such as DNA analysis. DNA analysis, they're by nature compared. So to begin to keep, even consider that type of test, assuming that the DNA on the shroud was in good enough shape to analyze and so forth, you'd first have to have a control sample that was a verified control sample of Jesus' DNA to compare it to. Um, that doesn't exist. So as far as definitively proving that the shroud wrapped Jesus blood evidence um, really not doable that way now as far as um, it, have we proven that it's real human blood I think you have to break that down into a couple of parts uh, real blood real blood components I would say yes in my opinion human blood in my opinion I'm gonna say based on new evidence no that those conclusions need to be reassessed, and I'll explain why that is. Based on new food findings, I think it now goes well past even a human versus primate uh, type of issue. I don't think in 2019 we can really say conclusively that the blood is of human origin. Um, so how do you know that blood's even present, or as far as what's uh, been done on the shroud? Uh, that began in the year 1973. Those were the very first tests that were done on the shroud bloodstains. It was done by uh, an Italian group of experts, Rachi and colleagues. Uh, they obtained negative results, but they ran into some problems with solubilization, that is getting the sample into solution. And that's really necessary to make a fair ruling 
on those type of uh, test results. So they essentially concluded that their findings were inconclusive. So they couldn't tell whether blood was present there or not. And the Italian scientist, Bima Bologna, he would repeat these kind of experiments a couple years later. He ran into similar problems with getting the samples into the solution, obtained a similar result that is inconclusive. He really couldn't say one way or the other whether blood was present. Now, if you fast forward a few years to 1978, this is when the STIRP investigation uh, was performed, Shroud of Turn Research Project. Uh, over 30 scientists allowed to examine the shroud for around 120 hours. Samples were taken then, as well as by the Italian scientist, uh, Bonnie Bologna. He also took some samples at that time. Their sampling methods were different. The STIRP team used specially designed tape. It was designed by the 3M company. It was very lightly adhesive, so it wouldn't leave a residue behind on the cloth. Uh, Bologna would use forceps to actually remove targeted threats from the shroud. Stirp sampled from both the ventral as well as the dorsal part of the image. Uh, Bologna removing the threads would only remove them from the dorsal part. Uh, presence of blood is, <coughs> excuse me, is initially determined by so-called first-round test or presumptive test. These involve the detection of hemoglobin. Hemoglobin is the signer molecule of red blood cells. Its job is to carry oxygen throughout the body. To put it in context, a single red blood cell, it contains about 250 million hemoglobin molecules. And most of these kind of tests, they're based on the fact that hemoglobin has peroxidase activity. That is, if you add in hydrogen peroxide, it will break it down, and then the product of that will go on interact with the substrate and give you a particular color, showing you that the result's positive. These type of tests really work best with fresh blood, Age blood may be a little bit problematic, so you turn to some other methods. For example, uh, you can take uh, acetic acid and salt and heat it. If hemoglobin is present, this is called the Teichmann test. You'll get formation of specific types of crystals that have a very unique shape. So this is one of the uh, types of tests that was done on the shroud samples. You look at this under the microscope to visualize those particular type of crystals. Another type of test that was done is you can use spectroscopy. A spectroscopy looks at absorbance of molecules under a particular wavelength of light. Uh, hemoglobin has a very unique profile. Using spectroscopy, you can tell whether oxygen's bound to it, whether there's no oxygen bound to it, whether other things are bound, and so forth. So in the early 80s, uh, both Heller and Adler, scientists from STIRP, and also uh, Bologna, they would report detection of hemoglobin by using those chemical methods. And Heller and Adler would also show this using spectroscopy methods. They would also report breakdown products of hemoglobin, including uh, bivirin and bilirubin. The spectroscopy was confirmed in 2015 by Vivaldi and most recently in 2018 by Paulo de Lazaro and colleagues. There. Heller and Adler also did some uh, chemical tests for another blood protein, which I'll talk about in a few minutes, albumin, and those tests were found to be positive. So these are also called presumptive tests. They indicate that blood is present, but they can't tell you what type of blood that it is. In other words, is it from human, is it from animal, and so forth. So for this kind of test, you have to turn to immunology. You have to turn to tests involving uh, antibodies. 
are also known as serological tests. You can also do it using molecular biology techniques uh, involving DNA methods. Immunological methods, again, also called serological tests, because these can tell you what species the blood came from. <clears throat> Excuse me. They could also tell you what blood type it is, potentially A, B, uh, A, B, or O. DNA tests can tell you all of the above, uh, plus they can determine if the blood is from a male or from a female. Throughout blood, it's most often reported as being human blood type AB. Mm -hmm. uh, sometimes it's reported as AB positive, sometimes reported as AB negative. Um, the positive and negative designation, that refers to something called the RH factor. That was discovered in 1940 through work with rhesus monkeys, which is where it gets its name. Stroud blood samples have never been examined for RH factors, so though you'll see it's AB positive, AB negative, that's just something that's kind of crept in the information and has just kind of been uh, maintained throughout the years. But I've personally communicated with uh, one of the scientists that were involved in the studies, and the RH has never been studied. So we're left with human blood um, type AB. So let's, let's first look at the human question. How do you really tell if it's uh, human blood or not versus animal blood? Well, two proteins were chosen for that analysis. There's, first is the protein albumin. That's the major protein that exists in blood. It's about 55 to 60 percent of total blood protein is albumin. It's important for maintaining osmotic pressure as well as its uh, carrier for certain uh, molecules. The second one that was chosen was immunoglobulin or antibody. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. This consists of about eight. This is about 18 percent of total protein. Immunoglobulin is a natural product of the immune system, very important for defense. So those are the two proteins that were chosen to be studied, albumin and immunoglobulin. Albumin was studied by Heller and Adler of the STIRP team. Uh, both immunoglobulin, uh, immunoglobulin was studied by both Heller and Adler as well as uh, Bologna. So these are really the key experiments on which the conclusion that the blood is of human origin is based. And, these results have never been published in a peer-reviewed uh, scientific journal. And for Heller and Adler, they're only mentioned as one-liners in two papers. They're also mentioned in uh, a couple of books. It's always mentioned as a work in progress. Uh, these were among the very last tests that Heller and Adler ever did because their sample was uh, starting to run out. Uh, Bama Bologna's work only been published in uh, Shroud specialty journals, in books, and uh, also in conference proceedings, that kind of thing. Now that's not to say that if you publish in a peer-reviewed journal, anything in a peer-reviewed journal is beyond approach, or if you publish in a peer-reviewed journal, that's automatic validation, that the work is very solid, etc. Um, that's just the expected route. For most scientists, that's the expected route um, that you go. And that's something that I found surprising when I started to look at exactly what had been done uh, regarding the blood stains. But, so let's take a look. Let's take a look first at the work that's done on albumin. How would you do this? What did the results um, show, etc.? Of the two proteins, albumin is the one that's been studied uh, in the most detail. So this is work by Heller and Adler. So to do this, here's how you do it. You take human albumin protein, you uh, inject it, 
to another species to immunize it. So the, uh, the species that was used was rabbit, and these antibodies were commercially produced. So the idea is that um, rabbits have blood, rabbits have their own albumin, but human albumin is a little bit different than rabbit albumin. So the rabbit's immune system is going to mount a response to that protein. When you inject it, it's going to make antibodies against human albumin protein that's been immunized or injected. So you give the rabbit a couple of extra boosts just to stimulate the immune system to maximize uh, antibody production. And then you remove the antibody. You might purify it a little further or you just remove it um, to use it. So now you have antibody against human albumin that was made in a rabbit. Antibodies are really, really small. You can't see them by just looking under the microscope. So you have to add some kind of uh, tag to it that allows you to visualize it. So they use the fluorescent tag in these studies. It's a very common technique. You hook up a fluorescent tag. So when you look at this under a fluorescent microscope, wherever you see a fluorescent positive signal, wherever you see it glowing, wherever you detect fluorescence, that indicates that the antibody's bound. The more fluorescence you see, uh, the stronger the signal, etc. So Heller and Adler uh, took labeled anti-human albumin antibody. They looked at blood-stained fibers from the shroud. They got a positive signal. They looked at fibers that did not contain blood stains. Uh, there was no binding. The signal was negative. So from that, you can conclude that the shroud blood stains contained albumin. And the antibodies directed against human albumin. So the suggestion would be there, well, that's human albumin that is recognizing. But there's something in immunology called cross-reactivity. And cross-reactivity refers to the fact that even though the same protein may be expressed in a lot of different species, and you make an antibody against one particular species, because there are similarities, because after all, the protein has to form this, perform the same function in those different species, because there are similarities, you can have cross-reactivity. So you could make it against human protein, but it might react with albumin another species. So this is called cross-reactivity. Heller and Adler were well aware of cross-reactivity. So before they even did any shroud studies at all, they took this antibody that they had generated in rabbit, so rabbit anti-human albumin, generated in rabbit against human albumin. They tested it against uh, chimp blood, blood from a chimpanzee. They saw a positive reaction, really not unexpected since chimps and humans are fairly similar. They also saw a positive reaction with baboon. When they tested the antibody against cow blood, horse blood, pig blood, the reactions were all negative. So they knew really before they did any experiments, they could only conclude, if they got a positive result, um, that it showed that there was primate blood that's present. Now primate has kind of morphed over the years into human, but if you go back to the original source, original report, that's what they concluded. But importantly, they didn't see reaction with cow, with horse, with pig. So, so that sounds pretty good, like you can at least restrict it to primate, possibly human. Well, what's now known in the past uh, 40 years or so, since those original experiments have been done, if you look at albumin protein, that same protein that they tested, if you look at it in other species, and if you look at the ability of an anti-human albumin antibody to react with other species not originally tested, such as a rat 
uh, such as a mouse, you'll get a very positive response. You'll also see the same thing if you were to test dog blood. In fact, in the past few years, dogs that have low protein levels in their circulation, they're treating dogs by infusing human albumin uh, into them. And this isn't uh, my work. This, all of this antibody reactivity is work that's done by a lot of different investigators. There's um, figure two in the latest paper I wrote. I think there's a link to it in the show notes. It's called the uh, Blood on the Shroud of Turin, Species Unknown. It's available on academia.edu. Uh, figure two shows three examples from papers and screenshots from companies that produce antibodies, you can see very clearly the reactivity using anti-human antibody. You can see reactivity with uh, albumin from mice and rats. When I saw those uh, original results as an immunologist from that background, for me it was like a smoking gun. I knew that the reactivity was much broader than has been previously appreciated. Now since in the past 30 to 40 years, what's also happened is there's been an absolute revolution in DNA technology and the genomes, the DNA of many different species has now been sequenced. So if you look at the albumin on, on a DNA level or protein level, if you compare human albumin versus albumin from uh, mice or rats or some of these species that cross-react, you'll see that they're very similar. So the DNA evidence really corroborates it. In fact, the most similar species is cat. Cat albumin, of all those species mentioned, cat albumin is the most similar to human albumin. And if you take anti-human uh, albumin antibodies, they'll react with cat albumin as well. So the message is, I think that the cross-reactivity was much broader than uh, previously realized. I mean, if you start seeing negative results with cat, cow, horse, and pig, think that things are, are okay. There's really no need uh, to look any further with this. But when you look at the DNA evidence together with the antibody reactivity, again, it's been demonstrated by many different investigators. This is not my work. I just look through uh, catalogs and papers and saw that that reactivity was present and that it's been reported. And I've also uh, personally communicated with some of the investigators that have done the work. So. I think if Heller and Adler had known that this cross-reactivity was that broad, um, they would have either changed the experimental design or certainly they would have made a different conclusion. Now, I also mentioned that there was another protein that was tested, which was immunoglobulin. This was tested by Heller and Adler, as well as the Italian scientist, uh, Bima Bologna. So Heller and Adler, uh, this is scarcely mentioned uh, in their work. Again, it's always just a work in progress. But they never even referred to cross-reactivity with the immunoglobulin studies. Uh, Bima Bologna in his reports didn't mention cross-reactivity at all. Cross-reactivity with immunoglobulin, from an immunology standpoint, that would be even more of a concern than cross-reactivity with albumin because it's known that those uh, there are domains or certain regions in the protein of immunoglobulin that are very highly conserved. They're highly preserved species because they're very important to function. So with that really you can't just look at the label of the antibody because it says anti-human. It was raised against the human protein but that's absolutely no guarantee that it's not going to react with that protein from other species. That's something that you have to uh, 
experimentally verified. So that's the uh, that's the human side of it. Is it really human blood? Is it really primate blood? I think based on that new evidence, I don't think you can really go back and say that there is. I think you have to seriously reconsider uh, a reinterpretation of the original results, and that's from an apological standpoint. Gotcha. So, oh, uh, so. So yeah, so just to, to summarize for the audience, so uh, Kelly here is saying it, it is real blood. It's proven to be real blood. It's um, However, we can't prove that it's human. Now that, that doesn't mean, what, like you wouldn't say we can prove that it's not human. We can't rule out. Exactly. Gotcha. exactly. So I'm, exactly, it's a great point. I'm in no way suggesting that someone put rat blood or cat blood on there. Uh, I'm saying that now I believe the correct conclusion is that it's unknown. It's unknown what type it is, and that's that's a fundamental characteristic of the blood that really needs to be um, evaluated. Very important. I also just want to add, you know, there's there's never been any experiments done on the shroud blood stains to directly look at whether or not animal blood is present, and those were never done in the original experimental design. That would never show up uh, in the original experimental design. Scientifically, it would be strongest strongest conclusion you could directly demonstrate that human blood was present but you could also demonstrate that um, blood from the different species uh, was not present depending on how you set up the particular experimental design you could answer several of these questions at the same time you could really uh, maximize the bang for the buck there 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 have been antibodies uh, developed since in, in 2010 an antibody was developed that very specifically will recognize human blood products, but it will not recognize blood products that are even very closer related primates, such as uh, gorilla, chimpanzee, orangutan, other species, etc. So I'm in, I'm in no way suggesting that there's gorilla blood or rat blood or anything like that. I'm just saying I think these new findings take it back to square one. They put it back to we don't know what the species is. Gotcha. Perfect. And, Oh, okay, and I can also talk about the AB if you if you'd like me to. So yeah, absolutely. Human AB. Um, yeah, yeah, absolutely. We had. Um, I, I know you didn't hear this one, but in one of our older shows, Shroud Wars, where it was me versus Alan, the the issue of the AB actually did come up, and uh, okay. the skeptic was sort of challenging that. So so yeah, please feel free to to mention your take on that. Okay, so AB. Um, what? What that refers to, these are um, there's about 30 blood groups on uh, red blood cells. The major one is the ABO system, and then kind of second, that's the one that's most important for transfusion, along with the RH factor, which is kind of number two, and then there are uh, a lot of others, so uh, less important in transfusion. ABO and RH are the main. So the ABO blood groups, they were first discovered in nine. One by Carl Landsteiner, who did some uh, transfusion reactions. So they're in that system: type A, type B, type O, and type AB. So what this refers to, A, B, etc. What this refers to is the types of molecules that a person expresses on the surfaces of their red blood cells. So there's a um, the blood groups are carbohydrates. They're sugars. So there's a core molecule of sugars, and if nothing else is done to that, that's referred to as type O. O comes from the word 
O-N-E, O-H-N-E, which means without. So if you have it's without any further modification, that's type of O. Now, some people have an enzyme that, that allows them to add an additional sugar onto that core. Those people are type A. So they express the core plus an additional carbohydrate. Other people have a different enzyme that adds a different carbohydrate on the end of the core. It's different from the one in A. These people are type B. And then some people have both enzymes. They have the A as well as the B enzyme. So they'll have a mixture of those on their surface, type A as well as B molecules. So that's what the designation A, B, O, or AB refers to, which is what particular type of molecule, again, these are carbohydrates, in other words, sugars, that are expressed on the surfaces of the red blood cells. Varies depending on geographical regions and kind of approximate numbers, but most people are type oh, it's uh, around 47%, although there's, again, some variability with this. A is about in the 40s, around 42% or so. A B is a little bit less than 10%, and AB is the rarest of all. Again, varies by geographical region, etc. but AB is usually around 3 to 5%. How do you tell if someone is type A or type B or so forth? There are two methods you can use for this. One is called forward typing, one is called reverse typing. Forward typing looks at what molecules are expressed on the surfaces of the red blood cells. So this is the most common one that's used. If you go to give blood and they prick your finger, they'll usually drop the blood onto a little card. The card has antibodies uh, mobilized on it, antibodies against A, antibodies against B, and so forth, and they can tell you what type of blood it is. This is called forward typing. You look at what molecules are on the surfaces of the red blood cells. Well, that work, forward typing, he didn't use antibodies on a card, but he used fluorescently labeled, fluorescently tagged antibodies, like we talked about with albumin. So he tagged them with a fluorescent tag and looked through a microscope. He used antibodies against uh, the A and B molecules. This was work done by Vima uh, Poloni. He would also um, extend this with anti-O antibodies some years later. But he looked at shroud blood stains to see what blood type were. Again, it's never been reported in a peer-reviewed journal. It's only in uh, specialty journal or books, etc. But he found that when he took blood-stained fibers, he got a reaction with both anti-A and anti-B, so concluded it was AB. When he took non-blood-stained fibers, so right next to the blood stains as a control, he saw that there was no reactivity. So he concluded that the blood stains are type AB. Now sometimes you'll hear the phrase, well, a lot of old blood types is AB. And one of the STIRP scientists, uh, Alan Adler, would actually um, rule these results as controversial because one of the things with AB antigens, their expression is not restricted to human blood cells. These are carbohydrates or sugars they're found in variety of organisms such as bacteria, fungi, etc. So you can have a positive test for AB without a red blood cell being anywhere uh, in the vicinity. So that's why you'll sometimes hear, well, a lot of old blood types is AB. Now sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't, but there is a slant toward that way where older material, uh, contaminated bacteria, fungi, etc. And the shroud certainly Mm -hmm. um, and it's been shown to have bacteria and fungi on it. 
So you can make the argument, well, that's really what we call false positive. It's not really reacting with AB molecules on red blood cells, but it's in fact reacting with uh, AB molecules from another source. Mm-hmm. Now, as I mentioned, the controls that were used here, they were right next to the blood stain. So you could argue, well, if it's simple bacterial contamination, eventually those bacteria are going to spill out over into the paths of borders. And if it's really contamination, I mean, even the non-bloodstained fibers should show a positive result. He didn't find that. And the counter-argument is, well, bacteria are always going to be where the food is most rich and most abundant. So they're really going to be heavily concentrated in that blood area. And that's why you find those results there. And you don't find bloodstained fibers. So it's somewhat controversial. Uh, whenever blood is transfused into a person, there's always two tests that are done just to make sure. Because if you put the wrong blood, uh, into certain individuals, it can be a fatal result. So we talked about forward typing. The other type of test that can be done is called reverse typing. The way reverse typing uh, is done is you don't look at the what's on the surface of the red blood cells, but you actually look at uh, what's in the serum uh, part of the blood. In particular, you look at antibodies against ABO molecules. And the way this works, and I'll explain this further, but the way this works is a person will have antibodies in their blood, in their serum, excuse me, against the ABO molecules that they themselves don't express. So in other words, if a person is type A, in their serum, they will have antibodies against the type B molecule, because to them, it's foreign. If a person is type B, they will have antibodies in their blood against the A molecule. If a person is type O blood, they don't have A or B. They'll have antibodies to both of them uh, in their blood. If a person is type AB, they have both A and B. In their serum, they won't have any antibodies uh, against A or B. So this is why certain people can accept certain blood types and certain people can't. AB blood can accept blood from anyone. Uh, O can only take blood from O always referred to typically as the universal donor. So that's called reverse typing. It measures what's in the uh, blood, what's in the serum portion. looks for specific antibodies against ABO molecules. Forward typing and reverse typing absolutely complement and cross-check one another, which is why they always do both tests just to make sure the blood type before transfusion. If you know the forward typing results, you can very easily predict what the reverse typing results are going to be, and so forth. Now, as we mentioned, for type AB, in reverse typing, you're going to get a negative result because they have both of those uh, molecules. Anyway, so this can be a problem when you go to test age samples that are suspected to be of type AB because what happens in reverse typing an efficient readout depends on the antibody molecule being functional. It's not enough for it to simply be there, but it has to be functional, which means it has to maintain a proper, properly folded 3D conformation. It has to uh, keep a very rigid conformational shape in order to uh, effectively function. It's a lot to ask an antibody to do this over time, particularly when you're in an environment where things are going to be dehydrated bacteria are going to be present with various proteases, etc. So you expect antibody function to decline um, as you start to, uh, the samples starts to age. And we're not talking about a really long time.
time here. So what can happen with that? If a person is really type A, they should have anti-B antibodies in their blood, and they will initially, but over time, the function of those antibodies uh, can start to wane. So when you test this with reverse typing, you'll get a negative result. You'll conclude uh, AB. If a person is type O, they'll have initially both anti-A and anti-B antibodies in their serum that are fully functional. With time, that function is going to drop off. So you'll test them using reverse typing on an older sample. You'll get a negative result. You'll conclude this sample has to be AB because there's not anything here. AB, you go to test that, it never had any antibodies to begin with. As it ages, it of course is also going to test negative. So you can end up with a lot of these blood types appearing as AB, which is another reason this phrase is sometimes used. Well, a lot of old samples type is AB. So reverse typing is not really useful for the testing of age samples. It was done by Bologna on Stroud samples, but I don't think you can really conclude anything from that, particularly because it's of the AB type, which gives you a negative result anyway. It's just a very circular argument that's inconclusive. So I think where that stands as far as the AB situation, is it really type AB? I think the results are suggestive, you know, it's possible that it's type AB, but I think you'd need to do another type of test, a di different type of test, in order to really confirm that. I mean, something like DNA analysis, if you could do that, uh, that doesn't look at antibodies and circulation, their function, it doesn't look at what's on the surfaces of red blood cells, but it lo looks at, uh, on the DNA level, which enzymes do you have to modify uh, the blood group. So that would give you a confirmatory. I think you really need a second confirmatory type test to really make that conclusion that it's type AB. And you could you could not, not use the type AB results to say, well, that shows that it's in fact human blood. You're ultimately going to have to test it in the way that I described to specifically look at whether it's from human blood, etc. And arguments based on th things like, well, the blood flows are very anatomically correct, etc., uh, it has to be, be uh, human. Um, you know, those all have their merit. Uh, they're somewhat subjective, but ultimately, you're, you're going to have it's going to come down to if you really want to know what the species origin is, you're going to have to scientifically directly test that in some of the ways that we uh, talked about. Gotcha. Okay. Perfect. Yeah, that was that was fascinating, actually. Um, but uh, now, Kelly, um, let, let's be fair here, because there are also some scientific findings by um, scientists like Walter McCrony, for example, that suggest, well, actually, it's not real blood. It, it's some right. other substance. So yeah, I was, do you want to maybe give your take on some of these counter evidences that suggest it's not actually blood? Sure, sure. So Walter McCrony was a microscopist by training. Uh, I think it's I think it's difficult to explain the immunological evidence um, that shows that there's uh, blood there of of some type. I don't think we really know what it is, but I think it's difficult to explain that uh, based on the other findings of Macron. But I'll, I'll just talk about those. So one is uh, Macron's was no potassium, no blood. So Macron looked for the element potassium, which if it's blood, it should be there. Uh, he didn't see a positive signal for it, so he concluded that there couldn't be blood. Uh, one of the stirps sometimes is Morris used a technique called uh, X-ray fluorescence to look at potassium. This was on the whole clock. Um, they reported 
no potassium as well. This is someone in the STIRP group. Um, but they also reported that there was a very poor signal-to-noise ratio. Uh, in other words, the background was so high, they didn't really feel like they could make a solid conclusion. That it was no, they did find no potassium, but there's also that caveat, which could certainly affect the results. And Bima Bologna looked at um, shroud threads. He used a slightly different technique than Macron. He used um, EDS, it's electron dispersion spectroscopy. It's a little different than the Macron. Instead of aiming x-rays at the sample, you're aiming an electron beam, but it's essentially the same thing. You're gonna knock electrons off the atoms. This gives you a signal. Uh, every element has a unique number of electrons and specific spacing, so you can use those techniques to determine which elements are present. When Bologna compared uh, shroud blood stains, the signal he got there real blood stains, um, there's a relatively good match, and potassium is certainly there. So I would say those results go directly against those uh, at Macron as far as the potassium is. Another um, test that both Sturp and Macron did, they used a test called the Mito Black. Uh, this is this is a general protein test. It's been around since like the early 1900s. It's not specific for blood, but since blood contains proteins, uh, it should test positive. Macron tested blood areas and found a positive result. He really wanted to use this to support his idea that, that this isn't blood, but it's paint. And for paint to stick, you have to have it in some type of binder. He believed the binder was collagen, which is essentially uh, animal glue. So he would conclude, well, that's why they, um, you get a positive result. Sturp used amino blood black, and they actually found when they tested just old linen without any blood on it at all, or they tested new linen, which had been artificially aged, so this is without any blood, amino black would test positive. And they couldn't remove the positive staining, could not remove it using proteases, which they should be able to if it's really reacting with protein. So they found amino black can react with older linen in a non-specific manner. So they actually rejected uh, their own test, saying that it wasn't really reliable uh, for protein. And Macron wanted to couple his amino black results with another test that looks for sulfur-containing protein. So the importance of this is uh, blood contains amino acids such as methionine and cysteine, and it'll give you a positive result for sulfur-containing proteins, whereas collagen will give you a negative result. And again, collagen is what Macron believed was used to help uh, the paint to stick. Mm -hmm. uh, when, when Macron tested for sulfur proteins on the Straub sample, he got a negative result. But if you look at what he did, his control sample for blood is absolutely coated with blood. There he gets a positive result. He tested one fiber from the Straub samples that has two small blood particles on it and got a negative result from sulfur. So he concluded that blood couldn't be there. Sturt does the same sulfur protein-containing uh, protein test. They do the exact same test, exact same method. On shroud fibers, they have more than just a couple small particles on it. They get a positive result. So I think when you get a negative result, it can truly be negative or it can be inconclusive. I think you have to look at um, a lot of the evidence together. And again, with the immunological evidence, I think it's hard to just dismiss it as just you know, simply being faint.
Excellent. Okay. Um, okay, so so given that it is, in fact, real blood then, um, not human blood, but necessarily, but uh, real blood, um, from an anatomical or forensic perspective, what, what types of blood stains are there? Like, uh, yeah, uh, go, go for it. Okay, so I'm, a, so I'm just a humble immunologist, cell biologist. Forensic, <laughs> forensic science isn't, isn't my area, but what has, um, what's been reported for the Shroud, you have those pre-mortem, before death blood, and also post-mortem, uh, after death blood. Uh, these kind of designations, they're essentially based on flow patterns. So when a person is alive, the blood is under pressure, it's actively pumping, it's going to flow from a greater extent. Uh, from an open wound. When a person is dead, the pressure is gone, it's more of a oozing out, which Fred Zuggaby showed that you can have blood uh, ooze out from wounds from a person that, that is dead. One cannot take a bloodstain sample, like remove some of the fibers, and chemically test it or immunologically test it to conclude, well, this is pre-mortem blood or this is uh, post-mortem. Blood. You'll, you'll hear similar arguments for shroud blood. Well, it's been shown that there's arterial blood present, there's venous blood present. And this is, this is done largely on the flow pattern, and particularly in the context of the image. So, so again, you can't just take the fibers out from these kind of blood stains. You can't take the fibers out and say, test them chemically or immunologically, and, well, this is from an arterial route, and this is from a venous route, and so forth. The context of the image is very important in the interpretation of that. I think it's somewhat subjective. Now, again, I'm not a I'm not a forensic uh, scientist by any means, but that's just kind of my general my general take on it. Gotcha. Okay. Um. And from what you know, though, you you would be convinced that there it's they're probably right that there are pre and post mortem blood flows on on this um, thing. Or... I'm honestly honestly not to honestly not convinced. I'm not sure. I would put in the unsure category on that one for me. I'm not saying that it's not, but I'm really not convinced necessarily that it is. Um, I mean, I think someone could have, uh, if someone did create this route, they might have uh, practiced on who who knows, you know, what people might do that want to do something like that. Could have practiced on some, used the model, or could have uh, laid it on a body, who, who knows. Just looking at the patterns, again, I don't really have enough expertise of it, but saying, you know, this is from Venus, this is from uh, Arteria, well, there's some papers, I believe it's from Rodante, I believe, that they'll give a diagram of the arteries and the veins, top of the head and the scalp, well, this, this is where the crown of thorns set, this thorn nick this one, and this thorn nick that one, I, I think it's really difficult uh, to do that, I'd like to see something, something maybe a little bit more objective. Uh, that would do that, but again, I'm I'm not an expert. And maybe if that's you know what you study all the time, maybe you can look at it right away and tell. But I always wonder, well, if you didn't have the image there, if you just looked at the fibers, I mean, would you be able to do it? But maybe you know, maybe it's exactly uh, exactly that way. It could be. I, I wouldn't really, I don't wouldn't really feel comfortable saying one way or the other. Just saying, me personally, I'm not yeah. I'm not convinced, but I'm not convinced. Gotcha. Perfect. No worries. Um, okay, so, so this is something that you sort of hinted at uh, in one of your previous answers, but uh, this is one question you wanted to ask about the hemoglobin DNA, and has that been isolated from the shroud, and, and if so, what does, what would that mean? Yeah, so um, this is from Garza Valdez's book, published in the late 1990s, The DNA of God. 
Uh, again, it's never been published in a peer-reviewed journal. It's only uh, from this book. This is one of uh, the DNA from the Strouds actually reported three times. So one is from Garza Valdez's book. That's probably the most famous, very provocative, uh, catching title, The DNA of God. Um, another is from Canal in 1992. He looked at DNA for bloodstains. And then 2015, Bacasio looked at DNA. It wasn't from bloodstains, but it was from dust, a vacuum from so Garza Valdez looked at three genes. One of them is beta globin. This is a subunit of hemoglobin. Uh, in human beings, mature red cells actually lack a nucleus. They don't contain uh, DNA. So any DNA signal you would see from blood cells here in, um, for human blood would be from the white blood cells. Uh, skin cells do have a nucleus. They contain DNA. Skin cells contain the beta globin gene. So what the finding really means is that there's human DNA from some source on this route. It can't be concluded that the DNA comes from blood, certainly not from uh, red blood cells. Uh, simple contamination can very easily explained. An average person on uh, single DNA, they shed about 400,000 skin cells, some of which contain DNA, which can be transferred called contaminating DNA or touch DNA. So you can very easily explain these results as just from uh, simple contamination. You know, in all cases where DNA from the shroud has been described, there's no evidence that the DNA truly originates from blood cells. And to do this, what you would need is a signature that's unique to blood cell DNA. So as I mentioned just a few minutes ago in the human, uh, mature red blood cells, red blood cells in the circulation, they lack a nucleus. They don't contain DNA. Their main function is to carry hemoglobin. White blood cells do contain DNA, and they do something with their DNA that's different from any other cell type in the body. So as part of their normal development and function, white blood cells rearrange the DNA for their receptors. Again, part of their normal development and function, they're the only cells in our body that do this. So this would work like this. Let's say you have uh, a stretch of DNA that encodes those receptor genes. And let's say it's numbered one, two, three, that, that, all the way up to 400. So in a skin cell, skin cell would contain in that same uh, gene for the receptor, but it would never be cut and pasted. If you isolated it, it would just be one, two, three, four, all the way up to 400. If you looked at that same receptor gene, in a white blood cell, it would look like this. One, two, three, 398, 399, 400. It would be specifically cut and rearranged. It looks extremely different from uh, the DNA of that same gene that's anywhere else, any other cell type in the body. So potentially, uh, if the DNA was in good enough shape, if the signal was enough to detect it, you could use this to verify that there is a DNA signal that actually comes uh, from bloodstains that's present. For just these kind of general things, finding a uh, beta globin gene, you can't uh, tell that it, you can't conclude that it came from blood cells uh, or whether it came from uh, skin cells. And if you look at a lot of the photographs, of, I mean, the Stroud's been handled throughout history by numerous people, been uh, cried over, etc. If you look at the stirp examination, there's a photo people with their hands over it, if you look at the restoration and things that have been done, people with hands up on it, without gloves, masks, etc. Yeah. Uh, Civil con contamination could 
very easily explain the results. No way can you conclude that it's from blood just based on that DNA finding such as that. Okay, okay. Um, but hasn't it... Um, oh, hasn't it been uh, demonstrated that the blood is from a, a male specifically versus a female? From a male, you bet. So this is um, this is Garza Valdez again, from the book mm-hmm. The DNA of God, uh, late 1990. So they examined three genes. Uh, one was the beta globin gene, a subunit of hemoglobin that I just mentioned. The other two were portions of the X chromosome and the Y chromosome. So uh, let me just explain real briefly how these kind of tests are done, because mm-hmm. I've heard versions of this in Shroud talks and interviews that aren't really correct. So it was not was not as though they looked at all of the DNA and they saw these three genes and everything else was degraded. So they tested these particular three genes. These genes were selectively targeted. They were specifically chosen. The human genome, so the DNA in the nucleus that encodes a human being, that's around 20,000 to 30,000 genes. They selectively picked out these three genes and essentially um, ignored or didn't look at the other three because these were the main three that they were interested in. They used a technique which is called the polymerase chain reaction or PCR. This was developed by Kerry Mullis in 1985. It's absolutely revolutionized DNA technology. How PCR works, you design a specific primer or probe for that gene that you're interested in. It will go into that entire a pool of DNA, 20,000, 30,000 genes, it will selectively bind to that particular one that you're interested in, and then it will amplify it up through a number of cycles. So in a few hours' time, you can have over a billion copies of that particular gene that you were interested in. So you might have started with one or two copies through PCR. You can now generate a billion copies or more in just a few hours. So it's like a Xerox machine for DNA. So this really increases uh, the sensitivity of the kind of test that you can done, you can do. So they selectively picked those three genes. They found a positive signal for XY. That's indicative of a male. A female would be XX. So can you conclude the blood's from a male? Absolutely not. You run into the exact same contamination issues that uh, we talked about earlier. Canale back in 1992 when he looked at this, he found uh, X and Y, but also found XX. So there was not DNA from a male as well as from a female. So what does this mean that you find male DNA on the shroud? Simply, there's male DNA on the shroud. You can, in no way, can you conclude uh, that the blood is that from a male. Simple contamination. You can very, very easily plant results. Gotcha. Makes sense. Okay. Um, all right. So. The next thing I want to do uh, is sort of focus on image forming mechanisms in relation to the blood states. Because I, I think um, typically, uh, even in former Shroud shows, uh, like with Hugh Ferry versus Joe Marina and that sort of thing, um, the image when we discuss image forming mechanisms, we, we primarily look to the body images. Oh, they're they're superficial. They're they're you know, uniform intensity, uh, three-dimensional, and that sort of thing. But the bloodstains often get neglected. So I, I wanted to turn it to you. This is your area of specialization. So what what do you think are some of the main properties or features of the bloodstains specifically? Um, and, and what are their relevance in terms of 
what sorts of image forming mechanisms might have been involved in in creating the shroud images? Um, so yeah, the, so the blood stains, unlike the image, uh, many of the blood stains soak all the way through to the back of the cloth. So they're certainly uh, non superficial. A lot of them have um, no apparent smearing. The, uh, French physician Barbet, he studied this route back in the mid-1900s. He referred to the bloodstains as counter-drawings, that is kind of mirror images of clots that have been transferred to the cloth. And I think a skeptic could argue maybe the edge was smoothed over during application of blood, and you didn't, don't have to add the blood with a brush. You could add it with a cloth or a bone or a sharpened stick or something like that. But I, I think one of the most telling features of the blood is one that was done by the stirp scientists Bern Miller and Sam Pellicori. They examined the shroud under UV light and uh, took photographs of it. And the Bern Miller photographs have actually become available during the last month it's on a website by uh, Tom DiMahala and Dr. Gil Boy. It's uh, shroudphotos.com. Uh, well worth a look if you're uh, interested in the shroud. And what uh, many of the wounds on the shroud show that under UV light, there's a ring or a halo around called a serum ring or serum halo. So what happens as blood clots, the solid portion of the blood clots, it retracts back and it extrudes or pushes liquid portion of the blood, the serum to the outside. When you look under UV, the red portion, the solid portion of the blood doesn't fluoresce under UV, uh, but the serum does. So um, you know, that's something very interesting. I mean, it suggests perhaps that it's clotted blood that's actually been uh, transferred over to the shroud, something that's uh, a lot different than somebody just uh, adding it on. I've, I've been interested in these serum halo rings for a number of years. I've been studying them for the past few years. I don't, I don't want to say too much about that right now, so I'm going to um, be presenting some of this at the upcoming shroud conference in uh, August. But... Um, I'll say halo form, halo formation, their visualization is dependent on a number of factors. There, um, there are other explanations besides clotted blood being transferred to the cloth. I mean, the arguments often used, well, there's no way a forger could anticipate their eventual discovery by UV light, or a forger would have to paint around, a ring around each wound, some kind of psychic anticipation that someone's going to eventually discover it. Um, I'll talk about a little bit, uh, a little bit different take uh, on this. And um, as far as you know, image formation mechanisms. If you go with the authentic route, I mean, the blood would have been exposed to uh, the blood would have been exposed to that process. And one of the kind of interesting features is you have a reddish color uh, of the blood that you wouldn't really expect for older blood stains and Perhaps the two of those um, are related. I can talk about that a little bit, uh, a little bit more if, if, if you wish. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. okay. Um, so probably the probably the closest person that's kind of tied the, those two together as far as image formation and uh, reddish colored blood stains. Probably the closest going right now, I'd say, would be work by. Uh, Paulo de los Arbo and colleagues. So they've used UV burst. They can stimulate the coloration of the cloth, which could apply to how the image was formed. Uh, they also, this is 
reported in 2018. They've also found if they have blood with uh, elevated concentrations of bilirubin, it appears to stay reddish uh, over time. So perhaps those two are linked that when the image was formed, that also uh, is responsible for the blood not being quite the color that uh, you might expect. Okay, okay. Um, all right, so you sort of hinted at my next question. I'm, I'm actually excited to get your take on this because I, uh, I'm not sure. Have you seen the, the paper uh, and experiments uh, by Arthur Lind? Uh, about oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Sure have, yeah. Um, so, so yeah, basically for the audience, they, they've done um, a couple of experiments testing uh, an artistic mechanism, like trying to use a paintbrush to paint the blood stains using real blood um, under the shroud, and they've, they've encountered problems with that. Uh, likewise, they've tried to test the direct contact, um, and, and they've come to their conclusions that uh, actually it wouldn't work, there would be problems, so... Therefore, they propose their their own, you know, supernatural mechanism as to how that would come on. But yeah, I just wanted to get to get Kelly's take on what did you make of these experiments um, and and that sort of, and their conclusions in that regard. Okay, so yeah, I'm uh, I'm familiar with the work of uh, Art Lynn, really extension of the work um, done by Gilboy a number of years ago in transfer of uh, blood clots and direct addition of blood, etc. As Dr. Lynn showed, there's a number of variables that can affect clotting and their appearance. Uh, temperature, a type of substrate is placed on, and so forth. Uh, I think something such as examination under UV, I think that could be an additional discriminator that could help sort these things out further. You know, would it would it have been difficult for a forger to directly add the blood and similar results to what you see on the shroud? I, I personally think you know, it's, it would be difficult, but I don't know if it would really be impossible. I mean, to me, uh, painting a Mona Lisa is certainly toward the impossible end, but to somebody else, it's much more doable. And I don't think someone can dismiss the possibility, and others have suggested this, but there may be some bloodstains were there originally, and you know, in an authentic scenario, but certain other ones might have been added afterwards, or certain other ones might have been touched up. Uh, at some point. I mean, years and years ago, relics were viewed a lot differently than today. There wasn't a lot of thought about um, preserving them in their original form for future generations, etc. They were often embellished or decorated. And arguments made, a person makes this incredible forgery, like the shroud, and it's the only thing they ever do, which you never hear about, etc. And you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not concluding that the shroud's fake, but you know, just consider a possibility. Maybe the person made it, and then they became ill and died, or they were killed in an accident, and so forth. And the truth is, no one really knows. Um, about the Antonacci idea that the blood stains disappeared and then they reappeared, and that they're unlikely to be explained by contact, uh, involves a supernatural process. I mean, I, I think a supernatural process is possible. I personally wouldn't rule that out. Uh, resurrection is a miraculous event. It's all about the supernatural. Uh, I believe in the miracles described in the Bible. Jesus turned water into wine, etc. I mean, I think if God created the universe, why not these other things? Something that mm-hmm. my own personal opinion is that they all fit within the laws of natural science. There's no disparity. It's just in 2019, excuse me, I don't think we necessarily have everything completely figured out. I mean, 100 years ago, what did we really know about uh, 
DNA sequence of many human and animal genomes. 500 years ago, if someone saw a fighter jet street by where you showed them a video on a cell phone, let's say, that you just made, they wouldn't think those were in the natural uh, laws of science. Uh, entering through closed doors, through disciples, walking on water, I think there's a scientific explanation. It's just that we don't yet know what it is. I mean, God's the author of both faith and science. Ultimately, there can be no contradiction. It's just, it's my opinion, but I think we've only scratched the surface of what actually exists. At least, I certainly hope so. It would be a lot more interesting if we didn't completely know everything. Um, about the specifics of the Antonacci idea itself, I would actually disagree. I think the vast majority of bloodstains on the shroud are a result of contact, uh, contact with a bloodstained body, and many of them are soaked through to the other side. You know, Dr. Jackson has shown using a, a three-dimensional form and a mock-up of the shroud of bloodstains that that's a, there's good agreement with where most wounds are and suggested positions of the body for the contact. I have a smaller version of a uh, 3D form. It's a little around three feet long or so. It's uh, was made, the one made by Isabel Pickchick. It was given to me by my uh, late friend Kevin Moran. And it also has, excuse me, it also has a uh, companion cloth with it with the image of the shroud and the bloodstain. So you can put the model down and then fold over and look at ventral and dorsal side contact. I think for most places, uh, a contact argument would work. Now, there are a few, such as around the uh, arm and around the back of the legs. There's uh, doesn't like any contact there, but maybe what you're looking at there, you're looking at a situation where it's blood versus, let's say, image of blood. And this was an idea suggested by Dr. Jackson a number of years ago, so that when the image formation happened, uh, there were bloodstains on there that had soaked through by contact. I would say most of them got there that way, but maybe for bloodstains that were, let's say, a little bit thinner or areas that were more abraded, uh, perhaps that image formation mechanism, however it worked, perhaps that also imaged some of those onto the cloth. It would be really interesting if you could look at those versus kind of the more typical blood states and then see what kind of uh, characteristics there are. So I don't really favor the idea that the blood stains were on and they were off and then they came back on again. I would uh, go with, with those kind of caveats that I mentioned. I would say primarily by contact. Now, there's certainly some interesting uh, interesting features there. There are some that, that cannot be explained by contact. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's what I was going to ask you. I know this isn't on the list, but just for my, as a quick follow-up um, for my own interest, because I've discussed this with Barry um, as well, and I, I've sort of questioned, okay, there, there are certain bloodstains that are uh, from a naturally draping cloth or whatever wouldn't be in contact um, with the cloth. So, so in order, if it's direct contact that explains those, then there would need to be some mechanism that puts those in contact in some way um, through pressure or, or something like that. But if that was the case, wouldn't it smear or cause damage to some of the some of the blood stains or, you know, different okay. bloods? Oh, um, and the second part quickly is, uh, you know, not all the blood stains would be in the same uh, state. Like some would be semi-dry versus re-moistened or something like that. And you wouldn't get the complete 
bloodstains, I find. So, yeah, like, what do you make of those two issues? Um, I think, you know, it, I think it could go either way. I mean, the bloodstains necessarily, I don't know if they would necessarily stick to the cloth and it would be uh, impossible. I mean, in my own experience, you can, after it's, uh, it's still moist enough to transfer, uh, but not, you know, completely wet on its way to drying, doesn't necessarily have to be something that you can uh, pry off. It'll give you a, a relatively good image. Of course, it depends on the state of uh, moisture that's there. Certainly, um, the ones that are the ones that are not in uh, contact. I mean, I, I think again, some of them could be images of blood. That's and so if things like um, hair is imaged. Uh, why not blood this image? If it wasn't, you know, physically too thick, that perhaps the signal couldn't go through. So it's a very, it's a very, very interesting question. I'm not, I'm not sure if I have a, a concrete answer to it other than that. Um, I, I think, uh, I think the smearing, the smearing is a, especially through an authentic route, the smearing is a, uh, is a very intriguing question. Yeah, something. I think something would have to happen very powerful and very quick gotcha. uh, to ma maintain them in that kind of uh, situation. I mean, we really don't know if the blessings are exactly like they were originally. You know, there's some on the top through the folding, unrolling, etc. probably abraded uh, quite a bit of that blood off. But yeah, cert certainly a very interesting question. Excellent. Okay, perfect. Yeah, Th thanks for doing that additional thing. As I said, it's, it's that's, that's the question that uh, bugs me. I've I've gone back and forth with Barry on it a, a couple times. So, so yeah. Um, I used to um, I used to my, my late friend Ken Moran passed away earlier this year. We used to talk about this all the time: blood versus images of blood. And uh, we would we would literally spend hours just uh, going back and forth about it. And uh, you know, he used to think that the blood stains kind of jumped on the clock that they kind of similar to the Antonacci, it was kind of a jump on versus maybe sort of me, that some of them might have actually been imaged, it's something we used to talk about, we used to talk about a lot, it's a very, very interesting question. Definitely, perfect. Um, okay, so uh, going back to the skeptical end now, um, another um, article that I'll be putting in sources that I'm sure you're aware of is the, the recent uh, BPA or blood pattern uh, analysis experiments by uh, Garlaskelli. Um, last July, so yeah, that apparently it, it's been forensically proven. These are these bloodstains are fakes, uh, artistic fakes. Uh, yeah, what do you, what do you make of these experiments and and their conclusion? Yeah, so he's gonna use um, try to look at the wound on the wrist to show the pattern pattern blood that runs down the arms, not the same on the shroud. Uh, look at the pattern of blood from side wound running down, it's not the same on the shroud. Um, they use real blood for some of the studies, but it had anticoagulant added to it, also had preservative added to it, been in the refrigerator uh, before a week, anticoagulant, I don't know, that's, the, that's a, a good route to realistically go. Other experiments were done with synthetic blood. Um, synthetic blood, sometimes when people use it, they'll put cornstarch in it to kind of thicken it up. It's not the real consistency you want. Now, he didn't use cornstarch or anything like that, but I don't know, you know, those are really a true, fair test of what it might be. And I think the main issue, I mean, apart from those things, the anticoagulant or that, those experiments where that was used, and I don't think that's a really appropriate thing, but bigger than that, 
in general, I think there are just too many variables. I mean, what about some sweat, some grime on the arm? That could have certainly affected blood flow. Mm -hmm. uh, Jesus would have been severely dehydrated. That would have affected the viscosity of the blood. Temperature, our blends work, and temperature could certainly have an effect on clotting. So I think there are just way too many variables. I, I don't think you can do a study like this and say, well, we found that it didn't match the pattern. That's Okay, great. Yeah, th thanks for your take on that there. Um, okay, so so one question again related to the image formation process, but this uh, in in regards to how do the shrouds blood stains relate to the body images uh, and their formation process? Because I, I take it you would agree that it it's not the same process involved in forming both images. So, um, sure. yeah, how, how do they relate to each other in the first place? Well, I think from a you know from an authentic standpoint, you would go the blood blood stains came first, and then the uh, image came second. And the blood stains, uh, from an authentic standpoint, blood stains being on the body, they would be subjected to whatever mechanism it is that uh, uh, form the image. So, as I mentioned earlier, one thing that can possibly tie those two together is the work by Paulo de Lazaro and colleagues. Short UV burst, you get coloration of the shroud. Um, same burst applied to blood, which increased the amounts of bilirubin, it appears to maintain the reddish color. So perhaps those two um, go together. You know, the the reddish nature of the blood stains is a really interesting property. It's been noted by a lot of investigators throughout the years. It's evident when you look at it in photographs. Um, when I looked at the Max Fry samples with Dr. Wenger at the microscopic level, I was really surprised at how red certain segments were. I mean, everybody's familiar with the fact that freshly isolated blood's red, and as it ages, it becomes brown. The reason that happens is because the form of hemoglobin undergoes a change from the oxygenated form, that's the red form, to the deoxygenated form, that's the brownish form. So the iron in the hemoglobin, that's the part that would bind the oxygen, and it goes and changes from a 2 plus form to a 3 plus form. You look at the blood on shroud, it's been shown to be in the deoxygenated form. It's expected for older blood, but instead of that brownish color, it still has kind of a, a reddish appearance. And there's quite a few theories that have been put forth to try to explain that. There's a, a hemolysis theory of Ray Rogers. So hemolysis just means hemolysis or lysis of red blood cells. He believed Lenin was treated with a, a compound called saponaria or soap work during processing blood in ancient times. It's known that saponaria is hemolytic. In other words, it lies red blood cells. Um, Rogers once reported that if you add blood to saponaria-treated cloth, 30 years later, that blood still stays red. If you add blood to non-treated cloth, um, that will blood 30 years later in black. However, no data has ever been published for that. No pictures have ever been made available or provided. And, I myself have looked at saponaria in various forms, other hemolytic agents. Uh, I'm going to talk about this at the upcoming conference in August. Uh, you can see prolonged redness with saponaria treatment, but it's not as straightforward as it sounds. There's a twist or two that's involved there. Uh, another idea is that carbon monoxide is responsible for the red color. The carbon monoxide actually binds the hemoglobin with an affinity 200 times greater than that of oxygen. So 
given the choice, hemoglobin is always going to bind carbon monoxide preferentially over oxygen. That's why carbon monoxide is such a deadly poison. When carbon monoxide is bound to hemoglobin, the blood takes on a very bright red, sometimes it's called cherry red appearance. It's even redder than usual. And patients where they suspect carbon monoxide poisoning might be involved, uh, emergency personnel look for uh, reddish color of blood and also a lot of times you can see reddening of the skin. When, when hemoglobin breaks down, one of its byproducts is carbon monoxide. And increased breakdown of hemoglobin, that would be expected in someone undergoing uh, physical trauma, scourging, crucifixion. Uh, Bima Bologna suggested, he was the first to suggest that carbon monoxide produced during hemolysis binds the hemoglobin and then that carbon monoxide stays in place and that's why the blood on the shroud is red. Uh, carbon monoxide, when it's bound to hemoglobin, it has a really distinct profile that you can detect using spectroscopy methods, looking at the absorbance patterns under specific wavelengths of light. And in 2018, uh, Paulo de Lazaro looked at uh, those absorbance patterns and found that it was not consistent with having carbon monoxide bound. Um, I've taken fresh blood, I've streamed carbon monoxide over it, this is done uh, uh, carefully controlled under a few minutes, so you don't want to try this at home, but I've put that over blood and it does turn red and then I've spotted it onto filter paper and also linen. After a couple of days, the color does not persist, it turns brown, just like untreated blood. And if you look at the spectroscopy of it, the carbon monoxide is initially bound and then it converts to the deoxygenated form. So that theory doesn't really appear to be true to explain why the strap blood stains are red. Probably probably the best known explanation is that of Alan Adler. He suggested the blood had a really high bilirubin content, indicative of somebody who had undergone some great uh, physical stress. Sometimes in shroud talks you'll hear that bilirubin is hemolytic. Um, it's not really true. It's, kind of, it's really backwards that way. So hemolysis, the lysing or breaking of the red blood cells, that occurs first. And then hemoglobin breaks down into bivert and uh, eventually into bilirubin. So Alan proposed, or excuse me, Adler proposed that blood that has high bilirubin stays red. And he said that if he put high concentrations of bilirubin into blood in vitro, mixes up, um, the blood was similar to that on the shroud, but this was never published. There's never any data or pictures of this that have ever been shown. Uh, the scientist Goldoni, he mixed in increasing concentration of bilirubin. He went up to five times normal and found that when he exposed this to UV light, um, there was an indication that the color persisted over time. And this is what Paulo de Nazaro has followed up on, uh, as I mentioned recently that uh, blood with higher concentration of bilirubin in the De Lazaro studies it was around 10 times uh, the normal amount for a person that had elevated bilirubin levels and after hitting with, with UV light which perhaps something like that could be involved in the image formation mechanism uh, the color of the blood red color seems to persist uh, over a number of years um, Neil Svensson has also uh, looked at this. He's looked at patients with normal bilirubin levels and with, again, around 10 times or so uh, increased concentration of bilirubin, followed it over a week, a month. He found that high bilirubin blood 
uh, turn brown, uh, just exactly similar to the control stakes. Now, one of the one of the issues in all the work that's been done, there's always been an anticoagulant that's been present, and probably most importantly, and this is raised even in the studies themselves uh, by the people who did them. There's actually two forms of bilirubin that are, are uh, can exist. There's an unmodified form and a modified form. And Adler's hypothesis would lean toward the unmodified form. And in the studies that have been done, you always have uh, both of those presence never leans toward the unmodified form. So that would be something that would be really interesting to uh, look into that further and then try to sort that out. Gotcha. Perfect. Okay. Well, um, yeah, but that covers all of the list of my questions for you. But uh, before we before we close out, I just want to turn it over to you. Is is there anything left that I've forgotten to ask you about either about the the shroud blood stains or just about the shroud topic in general that that you want to say before before we close out? Um. So so just in general. I, I think just to reemphasize, it's always important to go with the original sources to try to keep an open mind. Uh, regarding whatever you think about this route, I, I think it's more valuable if you try to disprove your hypotheses rather than just accept things that agree with your own thoughts. I mean, you can often learn more about the issue that way when you explore it from a different angle. It doesn't mean your idea may be wrong, but I think it'll get into view uh, a broader way of looking at it. So. Always be willing to test your idea openly, test it honestly. Don't simply play it safe. I mean, the man on the shroud, all about truth, right? Mm -hmm. um, another main takeaway from today, I think, is that the conclusion that the shrouds of human origin, I really think in light of new data, that needs to seriously be reconsidered. It's a fundamental property of the bloodstains that uh, needs to be established. And again, not suggesting in any way that there's rat blood or cat blood, uh, et cetera, on this route. I just think it puts it back uh, in the square of inconclusive unknown. That's all. Um, you know, the, the main message of this route is really what it represents. Greater love has no man than this, he who would lay down his life for his friends. And you look at stations of the cross made out of wood, made out of a composite material. You can meditate on those. It's very meaningful. It's very moving, very, very important really deepen someone's faith. The shroud, even much more so. That's the real message of the shroud. Message of love, message of sacrifice. Well said. Yes, I, I agree 100% with that, with those sentiments there. So, yeah, uh, Kelly, thank you so much for, for coming on. I, I hope that you had a good time, felt you got to, you know, get out the information that you felt was important about the bloodstains for people. Yeah, I had a great time, too. Dale, it was very enjoyable. Thank you. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Oh, you're welcome. Yeah, th thank you for being willing to come on. I, I, I always uh, appreciate um, hearing what Shroud scholars on, on both sides have to say. I, I was impressed with Hugh Ferry as well, and sure. Bob Rucker, and Joe Marino, and Barry Schwartz. So, yeah, I uh, hope, hope the audience enjoys this, and everyone have a, have a great week, and take care. Okay, thank you. Thank you again.